Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton. I'm here with uh, Hayden. Hayden has just finished a basketball tournament. <laughs> how, how did how did it turn out, Hayden? Uh, we tried, but we failed. <laughs> like many things in life, we tried, but we failed. But it was not in vain. Uh, it was a good season overall. Uh, but the players and the coach coaches are very tired. It's time to 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 do some serious sabbatical right. and think about some. That's right. <laughs> time to do some theology. Yeah, that that's the way I relax. We're gonna take up uh, Hayden has because of your unique experience uh, with that Duke, and you've kind of been uh, done research and gone deeper uh, into post liberalism. And so today we thought we would introduce the topic. And for many of you, this may be I don't know if it's old hat or not, but for someone like myself of of my generation, uh, I was trained in a modernist understanding. And it was a huge shift for me, and I can't describe it, but it was a prolonged, I mean, many, many years. And so I, I recognize that for someone who is not familiar with the conversation, it may be even hard to, to get a grasp on its significance. But once you, for me, the paradigm shift, I think, that I went through, what it does, it uh, shifts, I think, every part of one's theological understanding. And I thought Hayden is maybe will have greater insight into uh, these figures. He's, he's studied with Stanley Hauerwas and personally acquainted with, I think, the, the tradition. Paul Griffiths, I think, fits in there. So, uh, Hayden, give us a, a, a bit of an introduction, if you had to, as to the development through McIntyre, Fry, and Lindbeck, as to what's happening in, what, what is this thing and how it's unfolding? That's a big question, sorry. Well, our task is always great. Um <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think that's part of post-liberal theology too. Um, so the key starting place would just say, would just be to notice the adjective in front of theology post-liberal. You said that you grew up in a modernist context. You might have used a different adjective or maybe a different way of talking about the sort of theology you studied as liberal theology. Liberal theology, the way to kind of pinpoint begins with Friedrich Schleiermacher. Right in the early 18th century, Protestant who is grappling with new thought forms and new ways of approaching Scripture and understanding the theological task. Just so we don't, just so we don't leave anybody behind here. When you're when you're using liberalism, I can't remember which uh, figure it was, but actually, when we use the word liberal, we often think of you know a kind of slice of over and against fundamentalist or conservative. But in fact, am I right that that's not the way that you mean the term or that that's the way the term is being used among post-liberals? That is that fundamentalists, ironically, in this sense, are liberals. Yes, that's right. And there's, there's essentially two ways of conceiving that. Um, the liberals as George Limbeck will mention, um, are what's called experiential expressivists in terms of what they believe doctrine is, Christian doctrine. So the way that experiential expressivism goes is that it locates doctrine's truth uh, within the person, within the subjective, the dispositions and feelings and that sort of thing, so that um, what's the language of doctrine actually does is it maybe reifies or approximates what's going on in the individual. So that justification by faith alone, that doctrine from a Protestant context, is actually an outworking of a feeling within the individual. 
So you're constantly trying to express your experience. That's what doctrine's doing. Okay, so we might say that those who are more um, on the liberal perspective, the way that we normally use that word, the, that liberal perspective, as opposed to conservative. And then the conservative or nearing fundamentalism uh, works with a doctrine or a view of doctrine that is propositionalist. Um, that is, doctrines express objective facts or reality uh, about the world. And both of those are working with within the modern liberal view of the world that says we have knowledge of the world and ourselves apart from the scriptural text. Um, the, the exercise then becomes, how do I connect my personal experience or what I know about the world with the scriptural text? What the post-liberals are going to do, hence the word post-liberal, they're trying to get past liberalism, that dichotomy, will be to say, for at least 1,600 years, Christians have never thought like that. For them, the real world was the world of Scripture. They, they didn't have a knowledge about some world external to Scripture, but rather everything in their world was narrated by Scripture. So the work of the post-liberals will be to problematize the liberal dichotomy, either the propositionalist one or the experiential expressivist. And with Schleiermacher, I, I rudely interrupted your narration there of uh, Schleiermacher and his significance in, in uh, a kind of liberal context. So where would you plug that in? So um, this is a unique work that Hans Frey does. And before we, I get there, I, sh I should just, before I answer your question, that is, I should just say that Hans Frey, in a late work called Types of Christian Theology, uh, actually co complicates modern tellings of where to fit Schleiermacher in. But before we get to that point, that might be a later segment, Schleiermacher usually gets introduced as the founder of liberal theology, modern theology, in that he is the experiential expressivist par excellence. Because the way that his dogmatics works is that rather begin with the doctrine of God, which is actually the doctrine of the Trinity is an, an appendix of his dogmatics, which is just interesting. Um, is it that he believed that was the last thing that you could say about God, namely that God is triune, or was it that this doctrine really isn't relevant for the main discussion, and therefore I'll put it in an appendix? Either way, it's an interesting move. But he begins with anthropology. He begins with the human being. Um, and so that essentially what Christian theology is trying to get at, what Christian doctrine is trying to get at, is to explain in words... Uh, a feeling of absolute dependence that we all have. So in this kind of view, it's, it's still kind of Augustinian. I'm trying to communicate. I'm trying to connect uh, my personal experience with the world, and I'm going to do that through naming so that words end up being kind of vacuous um, and unimportant. That's one way of viewing it. Another way of viewing it is to say, well, no, our words really are important, um, and therefore we need to be as, as uh, fastidious as we can with what words we choose to uh, use to express our, our personal experience of, of absolute dependence. Maybe, maybe I could uh, uh, sum it up and uh, see if I sum it up wrongly. That whether we're talking about liberalism uh, or, or some sort of fundamentalism modern but what what's taking place in in through across the spectrum is that in some way re words refer to something outside of themselves and that it's obtaining that thing that is outside of the word so if you that it may reside within it may reside 
without, but the same, but the same thing is that language is simply a sign uh, pointing to a significance that does not reside in the language per se. Right. So what the problem with the Schleiermachian project, of course, is that in the words of Karl Barth, it's going to end up talking about God as a human writ large. And so ultimately what you're going to be worshiping is just a, a grander version of mm -hmm. yourself. Um, <clears throat> so that's one problem. Now the other way of doing it is, is still within that, that framework, um, that view of language that you've just eloquently and I think rightly described is that you're going to have the fundamentalists uh, who come along get so obsessed with scripture's extra textual referent so that you're going to have these uh, apologetic moves in response to the historical critical journey to find the real historical Jesus you're going to have that same form with fundamentalists except for they're going to try and, and, and hold to a more orthodox, should we say, um, grasp of Christian confession, so that their primary enterprise will be to read the the Bible, not so that it can narrate their own experience or narrate the world around them, but to see what it points back to, right? And so they're going to result to proof texting and uh, false dichotomies and strange views of scripture's inspiration so that the biblical text ends up becoming something like the Quran. And in mm -hmm. a sense, they're going to begin worshiping the Bible. Which there, there's a kind of irony in, in, in all of this, in that it's almost that you lose by, in some way, picturing the word of God as the object in this way. I mean, this is what's happening with the Quran. There, there is the sense that I mean, the purpose of Scripture, of course, is to in some way in, in, encapsulate reality that it's conveyed to us, and and it's hard to it's hard to 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 get at run that down a bit. You know, when we talk about even the doctrine of inerrancy, as I mean, this was the big battle that I grew up with. That really, what what is being defended by many Christians, I'm afraid, is precisely what a Muslim believes about the Quran. That here is a word that dropped from the heavens. Explain the difference between what a you know a Muslim's view of the Quran and and the, what at least introduce what we should see as the difference. Oh, th yeah, that's a big topic. Um... So I think the main difference for a Christian view of uh, Scripture is that, you know, it's only Scripture within a community. It's, it's not the words themselves. It's the words as they're constituted by a community, um, namely a Christian one. There's, there seems to be this really crude way of interpreting Scripture so that what you get is everything's got a correspondence. And that's this is where you're going to get into arguments over, you know, Genesis one and two, where there's no way of distinguish distinguishing between a literal reading and a literalistic reading, because everything's got to correspond to something. So that would be one issue that's in place: is that your your obsession with the literal words on the text, as if, uh -huh. or, with the view that th those words correspond to extra textual reference and rather than framing scripture's usage within a community that makes it intelligible um, there's also problems i think too differentiating between what we mean when we say the word of god i've heard real crude preachers talk about scripture in a way in which the holy spirit is not necessary or in a way that ends up making Christ the Bible, and that would be, I think, deeply problematic. There's there's a fundamental misunderstanding here that's going on, and, and it's that you have a knowledge of the world around you, and your task is to try and fit that world around, or that world around you in the biblical text. And you're going to get this with dispensationalism, so, you know, you're going to look around and see what events are taking place and, and figure out what age this is in the Bible. Um, you're going to get this, this crude version of uh, 
prophecy proof, proof texting um, that is looking around you and trying to find uh, the mystery encoded in scripture somewhere, usually in Daniel or some apocalyptic text. And that's to get the process backwards. Christians prior to the emergence of modernity believed that scripture narrated their world, that it wasn't about having this prior knowledge of the world apart from scripture. It was that scripture is the real world. And learning to think within scripture's categories and idioms and metaphors is the task. How do I become more textualized by scripture rather than how do I translate either scripture into modern categories, which might be the liberal Schleiermachian move, or how do I uh, correspond these extra textual realities that I'm experiencing in every day into scripture and import that back into scripture. And the post liberal move, move is to say, let's get this right. Let's, let's get back to that pre-modern, although I, that might not be the best way of putting it, but let's get back to the, the pre-modern way of uh, informing our lives. Post-liberal. Becoming deep, post-liberalism, becoming deeply textualized in scripture and having the scripture absor absorb the world. The, and maybe a little bit of, uh, you know, a picture of the way that this develops is helpful, that somebody like Rene Descartes, that the idea that, you know, what is, uh, what is truth, well, truth in some way, uh, is outside of language, or at least that language will uh, deliver you beyond itself. And so again, Wittgenstein is, is going to play a, a key part in all of this. That, he, in in a sense, he's saying a very simple thing, but it is over and against what is being said in uh, the modern period. That, with not just Descartes, but with Spinoza, uh, the idea that in in some way the language references points to the truth, whereas what is being described in a post-liberal framework, in this sense is pre-modern in that people just assumed they, they inhabited the world, the narrative reality of scripture, and truth cohered within that reality. It didn't reside subsequent to it or outside of it or as a reference. And that's why you'll, you'll often hear post-liberal theology called intra-textual theology or narrative theology because it's it's focus on the narrative of scripture and and ourselves being intratextually woven into the story that scripture narrates so for for those listening if you've ever heard of narrative theology or intratextual theology think here post-liberal theology which gives you a very different way of of reading the bible my <clears throat> That it just shoots off, uh, you know, in, in many directions. But someone who who we normally wouldn't connect with this, but somebody like Richard Hayes, who I was also at Duke, uh, he's doing a very simple mm -hmm. thing that that biblical scholarship has long done. But he's doing it in a way that reaches back, I think, to a kind of pre-modern understanding in his notion of the echoes of scripture. I mean, it, it, at one level, it's a very simple idea. Oh, well, what, what's happening in the New Testament is, uh, you know, taking up the idiom and the, the echoes of the old. But what he's saying is, is, I think, you get at the depth of it only through recognizing a kind of narrative significance. It's not just that they're taking up the language, but they're taking up this idiom and these words uh, and trans, in, in other words, the the reality of the one informs the other, in in the sense that it's uh, it's not a departure from, but it's it's an inhabiting. You know, th this is the sense that the you can read the New Testament only against the background of the Old Testament. You can read the Bible only in the context of the church that. There is that all of these things are integrated uh, into a 
form of life in the language of Wittgenstein. And so it's a very different way of reading rather than a kind of propositional, you know, the way that I was taught theology. And uh, it took me years and years mm -hmm. to <laughs> extract myself from it, is that you, right. you line up, okay, here are these propositional truths, and these truths then constitute, you know, the doctrines, and we can sum these doctrines up. If you believe these doctrines, if you hold to these propositions, then you're a Christian. Right. And what, what, yeah. and of course, what you're describing, what all of these guys are doing, is that no, what it that what it gets left out of that, you know, in, in the way I just described that. Uh, well, what do you do with the life of Christ? Is it simply reduced to the propositions, uh, the doctrines? Mm -hmm. uh, and and in a strange way, then we almost can do away with the gospels. Because the Gospels are primary, primarily narrative. In fact, most of the Bible is primarily narrative. And so what you get in a kind of modernist focus is uh, appreciation for the letters of Paul and for, you know, the, the uh, Romans and, 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 and a kind of you're not quite sure what to do with the narrative portions uh, other than to reduce them, extract from out of the story uh, right. propositions it, that what you've there. narrated there, I think you've done very well. And in, especially incorporating Richard Hayes in there, that there's something to be said about when we talk about post-liberal theology, I know I mentioned intratextual theology, narrative theology, but Yale school theology, uh, this, you know, if you look at the pioneers of post-liberal theology, you know, it happened at Yale with Robert Calhoun uh, George Limbach, Hans Frey, and then Stanley Hauerwas, and then uh, those that are carrying that mantle today are usually Yale graduates or Yale-informed. And so you've got Richard Hayes, right? You've got uh, uh, Catherine Tanner. Um, you've got William Platcher, who passed away a number of years ago, but he was carrying on that mantle. Um, and then, <clears throat> obviously, uh, this is a, an area that I'm interested in because I went to Duke, which in many ways in, is kind of indistinguishable from that Yale School of theology. Um, and and so a paper needs to be written. I've I've done my best to to do this, but about how how Duke has carried that legacy onward. Um, but in your narration of the importance of biblical narrative, I think you get it exactly right in that if you, are, you know, I, I remember reading scripture as a young evangelical at the age of eight, like the picture you described about you extract from scripture doctrines that you're supposed to adhere to intellectually, and then you're a Christian. I remember reading first Samuel and wondering, you know, and I was eight years old, wondering what this teacher teaches doctrinally according to that picture. And it's not straightforward. Um, right? So there's a move in the post liberals, especially with Hans Frey, um, to say that scripture has its own reality constituting powers. And the way that it does that is through narrative. And narrative has been eclipsed, hence the name of Hans Frey's first major work, The Eclipse of Biblical Narrative, by liberals who either want to use scripture as a, a source for historical reconstruction of the past, or they want to use it as a book that instantiates timeless truths, eternal truths that we just dig out. And, and that would fit into that picture of doctrine that you were just depicting of we, we pick up scripture, we open it up, and we try to extract the, the eternal doctrines. And then those ones, once we put them in a list, usually called systematic theology, uh, we assent to that, and therefore we're a Christian. So that when you uh, pick up uh, typical 
theology book. I mean, this was what I was weaned on. You you just uh, list the propositions, you list the various topics, and what is happening in this sense with Karl Barth, I think, is significant and would sometimes be counted as among the post-liberals. I assume they're counting him. Uh, is that that he, in some way, is now whether he fully articulates this as it, it is articulated in post-liberalism, that he also then is uh, returning then, as he says in his phrase, to the strange new world of the Bible. That is, that you're entering into an alternative world uh, in Scripture that has nothing to do with that kind of modernist, reductionist, foundationalist view of reality. I like that you bring up Bart and you brought up... Alistair McIntyre as well, uh, a philosopher. Um, but it's important to note the sources that make post-liberal theology possible, as you mentioned, Karl Barth um, and his desire in the second preface of the Romans to, you know, to, to, to have a conversation with Scripture, or rather let it have a conversation with him, and then his, his strange new world of the Bible that gets taken up uh, very nicely by Hans Frey and others. But um, also Hans Urs von Balthasar and his whole notion of the theodrama um, make this possible too. There's a, there's a narrative reading, obviously, of scripture there um, going on. Uh, philosophical sor- sources that make it possible, as you mentioned, Wittgenstein and his whole linguistic revolution, Alistair McIntyre and his emphasis on narrative and virtue formation. Uh, gets you past a lot of the the moral theological impasses that have plagued Protestant liberal uh, theology and Roman Catholic theology for quite some time. Um, there's new appropriations of uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, in a, a return to um, the the fathers of the church again to not only read scripture in conversation in conversation with uh, itself, that is New Testament, Old Testament, and canonical readings, but also to read it within the church. So you've got that, um, and that was inspired by um, the Resolsement theologians, uh, all Roman Catholic. And, and so there's um, these really rich, interesting sources that make post-liberal theology um, possible in that you know, Martin Luther in, ends up becoming a bedfellow with Thomas Aquinas. And so that's one of the real neat things about post-liberal theology is its ability to look back at Christian paths for help in in trying to get past the liberal impasse of doctrine and morality and theology. One thing to be said about this story, though, is what George Limbeck ends up offering us as a different view of doctrine which he'll call the re- the regulative view or the rule theory of doctrine. He'll he'll say that religions like Christianity function as cultures or as languages. And within those cultures and languages, you have rules that make your community be what it is and, and live as what it is in that, that sphere. Doctrines, he wants to say, are like that they're the rules they're the rules of your speech and the the rules of your life so that he'll give the example of if someone says jesus is lord how do we take that well we'll take we'll, we'll take the meaning of that based upon the life of that individual so he gives the example of a crusader cleaving the skull of a quote infidel unquote saying Jesus is Lord. Well, obviously, if you've been formed by Scripture in Christian tradition, there's a contradiction there. That view that Jesus is Lord just expresses a propositionalist view of doctrine that it just refers to objective realities uh, seems quite an inadequate for making sense of what's going on there, as well as an experiential expressivist view where this expresses some individual's desire just to kill somebody. That's in contradiction with the other uses of that phrase. What's really nice about Limbeck's proposal is that it's able to incorporate the propositional and experiential expressivist impulses, 
but within a larger view of doctrine as a, as a rule guiding thing so that Jesus is Lord will be judged true on the basis of my life. Is he using the term rule here in a kind of deep grammar sense, a Wittgensteinian sense that it's not that with narrative theology, of course, you leave behind doctrine or propositions or any of that, but that they then are serving a framework that is filled in as your as in your description there. Well, Jesus is Lord as a bare bone proposition. It could mean any number of things, but the doctrine is only filled out in a uh, understanding uh, a, a larger framework that might be filled in with an, a narrative picture of what that means and how you follow this rule or how you go on. Where that rule might be in place. That's right. It's it's a more holistic approach. Approach. Um, doctrines guide and inform Christian practice, and so we can judge the truth of that doctrine insofar as it adequately is lived out or is not. So it's it's proven false because it contradicts something, some other prior Christian understanding of say. In the case of Christ, as somebody who suffered and died on a cross, that's in flat contradiction to the way in which the crusader is using Jesus as Lord, when his lordship, as John Howard Yoder will talk about, is a suffering lordship. So that the the picture is that, and and this is the significant thing, that in a post-liberal or narrative theology, that ethics is drawn back into the heart of uh, theology in that, in other words, you could take all of the propositional truths of Christianity. I, I'm, I'm presuming you could take all of these truths that as bare-bone propositions, okay, here's the doctrines, but make it a lie from hell and make it pure evil, acknowledging all these truths but attaching it to a different, in other words, in your example, Jesus is Lord may mean you go around hacking people's heads off even terms like sacrifice or or even a, a key term like love these things mean something uh, very particular that we can only uh, understand completely or fully in a narrative context with a particular set of a, a particular notion of ethics attached to the doctrine that's a, that's exactly right and it's it's going to curb against the obsession too in Protestant liberal and Roman Catholic veins of moral theology that emphasize so much on either an acts-based or duty-based view of morality or in the Roman Catholic sphere, a conscience-based or the crude situational ethics of uh, Joseph Fletcher. And it's going to focus on the formation of the actor. And once you do that, you're going to come back to Aristotelian virtue ethics, which is focused on the narrative life of an individual, who that individual is becoming. And so what those acts are uh, either form, how those acts are either forming or malforming that individual. It's a very different understanding that if we had a word that dropped from heaven, uh, that in some way we don't need the humanity of that word. We don't need the history. Uh, the historicity of that word in, in the sense that we're using the word histor historical or contextual. But what is being described in, in a narrative theology is the, the human aspect, which in no way is to take away from inspiration or divine, but just to, to point to the fact that no, the, the, it's very important that we get at the humanity of Scripture because the very nature of truth, I mean, this is why Christ is incarnate, is that it is in his humanity that truth is realized. And we only have access to divinity in and through the humanity of Christ. We do not have direct access to deity apart from the incarnation, history, context, language, all of that then in, enfolded into a, a, a broad picture. Exactly right. I threw that out there as a kind of uh, the reference to the Quran, that I think this is precisely the way that uh, fundamentalists and modernists were reading Scripture, 
linked to the way that Muslims read the Quran is the narrative uh, then was getting left out. The, the ethics was getting left out. The story, in a way, is a way of how to live a human life, what it means to be fully human. It's not just what it means to be saved. In this understanding isn't, oh, well, you got all the propositions right, you got all the doctrines right, now you won't go to hell. No, what it means to be saved is that you realize the fullness of humanity in the manner of Christ. Right. Without this revolution of post-liberal theology, we're left with, again, as you've mentioned, knowing what to do with biblical narrative and how it's important for our lives. And this is the crisis, and I talk about this in, in a paper, but this is the epistemological crisis, the crisis of understanding that's going to plague Christians after Schleiermacher as we no longer know how the biblical narrative is important for our lives. Because, and we won't be able to name it as such, we're just going to have this prior knowledge of the world informed by the general liberal tradition, Western liberal tradition. We're not going to know how to connect that with Scripture unless we come to Scripture in precisely the manners in which I outlined earlier, which is a source of historical reconstruction or an instantiation of timeless truths. If we ask the question, what does biblical narrative have to do for us? We won't know how to answer that. I'm never sure whether it's a good thing to bring in. I mean, what is happening in theology is just what's happening. It's not just in theology. It's also happening in philosophy of science. It's happening in many places. There is, the, the in a sense, what takes place with Thomas Kuhn, you know, with the, the, the structure of scientific revolutions. And I'm never sure that Kuhn himself right. got there. But what he's recognizing in science itself is, well, actually, we had pictured science as in some way working with pure facts, truths, and, and what he's saying, well, no, actually, that these truths only cohere and make sense within a paradigm. Uh, there's no such thing as a fact devoid of a hypothesis or paradigm mm -hmm. or theory. In a sense, it's the same story. It's the same thing, that there is this recognition that we had pictured the world at, in a kind of modernist context right. uh, as if it was given to us, as if it's a, a reality that's already there, and we've apprehended that reality, and now we just kind of add on to it or build on to it. And I think that's the way that Christianity functioned for many people. It was an additive to a world view that they already had, and so they just fit biblical propositions and doctrines into whatever context, whether it was an American context, that it might enable them to be a successful entrepreneur, or it might be one of the things they'll need to be successful in their community, rather than as a complete undoing of one world and the opening up of another world. One of the things that happened at Duke was uh, I got the chance to study with a man by the name of Kevin Rowe, who's, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar. I encourage all to go read him. But he used to talk about in his Gospel of Luke class, after you finish the Gospel, pick it up and read it again. And the idea was that, that Luke's world, that the world of Scripture becomes yours. And that you stop thinking in the manner in which you just outlined of the seven principles that Proverbs teaches us about money or the seven principles that we can learn from St. Paul on gender, sexuality, I, wh whatever, right? You stop having your own interests uh, come to, to Scripture and rather you submit yourself to the Word and allow it to absorb you so that its questions and its modes of thinking begin questioning the world in which you used to live and the life that you used to live. That's a different way of conceiving uh, the, our relationship with Scripture, but that's the one precisely that a post-liberal would be espousing and be advocating for. I've been looking at a little bit into the role of shame, and of course we normally think of shame, and I think it is a primarily a negative thing, that when, when we're ashamed we kind of fall apart and we're undone. But of course what what Partly the positive element that is taking place, you know, that the prophet comes onto the idolatrous scene and introduces God into the scene to shame them. 
uh, that is to break open their world, to undo it. We, we might even think of the fall of man, you know, in Genesis, that they're undone. The worst thing that could happen to them is that they become comfortable in that fallen world, in that fallen place, which is, is, of course, the way you're going to do that is to cover up. You're going to hide. You're going to, uh, in some way, not expose yourself to the fullness of the reality that is presented to us in, in Scripture or by God. And so there is a sense, ironically, I think, in which a form of Christianity can aid and abet us in hiding from God, hiding from the fullness of reality, in that it is a a kind of making us comfortable with the world as we have it, rather than breaking open that world and offering us, in the words of Bart, the strange new world of the Bible. And, and allowing it to question you. Um, that's that's one of the, the beauties of calling Bart's early theology as crisis theology, is that Scripture puts the modern person in crisis, if you would just allow it to. And maybe that's the, the truth that Bart himself, I mean, he comes to that through his own crisis. Right. Well, yeah. And exactly, he, right. And he, what he's experiencing is that he was one who was comfortable with theological liberalism until he saw theological liberalism in the build-up to World War I uh, aligning itself with all that was evil, and then in World War II with the rise of National Socialism in Germany. He was prepared, in a sense, because what you know, a good Schleiermachian theological liberalism prepared people to do was to fully integrate themselves into culture in the world as it is and as it was shaped by uh, a madman like, like Adolf Hitler so that rather than resisting that world, they accommodated themselves to it. Right, and you narrate well this really strong point in time in, in Bart's life where he sees the dissonance between, say, making the profession Jesus is Lord, which he's very fond of doing in, in the dogmatics, with a life that flat, flatly contradicts that, uh, with with his former professor's alacrity to sign on to World War One, and there's open approval of sponsorship of uh, Germany proceeding into World War One. So there's that on the political part of it, but then there's the the ordinary dissonant moments that Bart has when he stands up to preach on a Sunday. Now you're a preacher, so what do you what do you conceive as your task uh, as your task on Sunday? What what are you charged with doing? My guess is narrating a world, right? And in seeking to get your congregants absorbed in that world, but as somebody who's been formed in theological liberalism, you stand up to preach on a Sunday, is my guess, as Bart did, and you don't know what to say. You don't know what to say if the lectionary is given you First Kings, um, other than to say, here are three or four principles that we can learn from this. And Bart will talk about this in his life, that as a sort of epistemological crisis happened, he didn't know what to do with Scripture. Precisely because he would open it up and the concerns of his parishioners uh, who were, you know, suffering and oppressed workers. And he didn't know what to say to them as a pastor. And so what happened for him, what I've called elsewhere and what what, what I get for, from Alistair McIntyre is an epistemological crisis. That the ways in which you have conceived of the world and the, your, your ways of knowing it, even the very schemata for ways that you interpret it, have been called into question. You no longer know what is true because of that, and hence the crisis. With every epistemological crisis, you're going to have to supply a new narrative. Um, you're going to have to to narrate how you got to that moment. And Bart's going to narrate it, that he got to that moment because of a wicked theology. A wicked theology that saw God as man writ large. And hence the dogmatic revolution that Bart's going to go on with. And post-liberal theology is going to try and carry that mantle. 
I've always thought that in this, that for me, this is the significance of, you know, the word postmodern. It, it means so many things to, to so many people, but at a minimum, what it means is an epistemological crisis with modernity, mm-hmm. which is a, is a wonderful thing, is a good thing. In as much as evangelicalism or American Christianity is caught up in modernity, I see it only as a positive thing, and, and a, a, maybe this is too dark, you can correct me, <laughs> as, pe- as people uh, in, in some way abandon that faith. In other words, surely this can't be right, but it's almost a a move in the right direction to have a crisis of faith, uh, especially when your faith is integrated with, as it was with Bart in the original sense, with a world that's that's really going to to be evil, that is is going to give rise to evil. I, I think in a strange way that at this point in time, in this country, I mean, the United States is always, we're always, you know, a century or half, half a century behind the rest of the world in, in terms of popular culture. But I think that there is a kind of an epistemological crisis for many people, uh, many Christians, many conservative evangelicals, that really can be a positive thing. It can be an opening up then to something beyond uh, what, what it is. I think a kind of demonic Christianity, right? And now you go ahead. You go ahead and tell me how, how that can't possibly be right. <laughs> no, well, <laughs> you know, I I would say that maybe that privileges the intellectual too much, and that for those that are given to thinking, which I would say you and you and I are. I think it's a really good thing to abandon that. But I don't think most people are given to thinking. I don't know how how I would elevate the intellectual side of things in the life of faith, the ordinary life of faith. No, it's not to say I don't think that it's not problematic. Uh, Ways of conceiving scripture and the world and stuff like that are problematic, but I just don't think most Christians are actively engaged in deep thought about the sorts of things that they do, unless they have an epistemological crisis. Then they start to to think more deeply about their world and their place in it. But I think you're, I think you narrate it right. I was hoping you'd tell me I was wrong. <laughs> I think I'm there wrong. are mixed goods. I, I think you hit it. That I think you can make this move. You can make this shift, and and I've seen it happen. In other words, yeah, for for somebody in that that is studying theology, one would hope that you can make this shift without necessarily uh, going through the the intellectual process. But um, okay. and I, I think that yeah, surely that happens that there there is a that people make the same shift. They just may not articulate it in that. One way. thing that's hard uh, about studying theology or really any academic discipline, but I'll just limit it to theology, is that when you do it, like you and I love to do it, even in our free time, we love to do it, we tend to privilege the intellect above other parts of being human. And we end up confusing the intellect with uh, maybe a living faith. Mm -hmm. And so that when we walk into, for example, me, Uh, When I walk into my parish and I see a little old lady praying her prayer, that in some way, I don't know what to do with her. And um, I don't think that's right. I think most of faith has nothing to do with thought. Um, It's when we run into problems that we get into thinking. I just think of most things that we do in life as habit. And the process of becoming a Christian is to become so habituated to the life of Christ that you don't have to think about it anymore. We get into thinking when there's a disconnect. This was true in Japan, and I think it was true in Germany, that it it wasn't simply the people like Bonhoeffer or the people who, you know, the the, the liberal theologians were uh, peculiarly egregious in their, in giving way. This was true in Japan, the, the degree to which they would bend over backward. But there is a sense in which people have been shaped a, a narrative form of life and and wouldn't know right anything else right and um i think oh. there's 
there's something about walking into a church and seeing the person saying their prayers that is deeply instructive to someone like me who will privilege the intellect and think it's the most important thing when when it's not that what the lord asks of us is not all that much and that's a return of the love and the gift of being that he's given us oftentimes i think theology can get obsessed with trying to figure out who the lord is at a distance rather than give that gift of love back or seek to give that love back in return and that's the christian life that's the life of ordinary christian confession the life of seeking to give that love back and to receive it well and i'm not sure how much it has to do with thinking i um i i think one thing that's helpful about wittgenstein and the post liberals is that they tie it so much to embodiment and that wittgenstein will, sh will show us that it's when we get into thinking that something's gone wrong because if we have to think about it, there's a disconnect. If I have to think about how to turn on my car, it goes to show you that I'm not very good at doing it, right? And if I have to actively think about the Christian life and how to be a Christian, it just goes to show you that I'm not yet well acquainted with that life. Yeah, I don't know how that fits into everything, but that's more of a, a, a thought that's emerging uh, right now. Oh, that's a great, that's a great summer, uh, a beautiful summer. Thank you, Hayden, for this uh, this uh, introduction, and uh, let's take up again with uh, uh, post-liberalism and, and maybe a bit of a critique next time. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.